Keep your Bibles open there to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be uh, second week now in this new series of uh, this book here at The Journey. We love to preach through books of the Bible and um, let the Bible really dictate our topics and where we're headed. And so today we're headed at unity. And if we're just saying that, hey, you know, we really need unity in some parts, like if we're just thinking about our lives in general and our country, that's becoming uh, more and more almost laughable and, and certainly discouraging, right, that, that that seems like an unattainable thing. I, I was uh, reading someone recently that said, um, I, I think it was as recently as 20 to 30 years ago, there was 14% of the country, um, 14% of the public here in America uh, believe that the the opposite party, right? So Democrats, Republican, believe that they that the other party was not just wrong but evil. Now that's up to over forty percent of people here in America believe that again the other party is not just wrong, but actually evil. And we sort of see this 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 hyper polarization in our in our country just getting amplified in so many areas, and not not just you know politics, but just in general. And, and so what that means is that we, like, we're no longer bonded by, you know, who we are as a country, right, and the fact that this is a great country and we have incredible freedoms and how we got here, that, that shared sense of who we are is, is, is lost in many ways, and, and now we're identifying ourselves by what we're against, right? And, and we got to sort this, uh, this polarization, and, and people are identifying not with the, the bigger, you know, what we can all share and, and celebrate the, who we are and then sort of discuss issues, you know, with civility. But instead, we're identifying increasingly with things we're against, and we're having these anti-tribes where we're sort of just looking for, for ways to prove the other one wrong. And, it, and it's, it's creating this, this uh, sense of urgency in our country, and, and you feel that in different ways. And, and, and here's the good news. This is not a political sermon. It's not a sermon on politics, not even a sermon on our country. I say all that to show you, uh, to simply say that when Paul says that it's important that the church be unified, that the reasons are far-reaching, not just for our sake, not just for God's sake, but for the witness amongst the world. And so when we hear that word, we hear Paul talking about unity, um, it has implications that most of us perhaps don't think about on a regular basis, but the fact that this is what Paul's going to talk about in a book that uh, we, we titled this series Issues because Paul's just going to go from one issue to another, right? As he's working through this book in 1 Corinthians, he's going to, okay, now about this, let me, let me set you straight. Now about this, let me set you straight. And he's going to get into things, like, the fact that he's talking about unity first should tell us something because if you've uh, paid attention or sort of know what's coming in this book, Paul's going to have to talk about things, uh, uh, you know, regarding um, you know, marriage and divorce, and we've got, um, we've got people that are getting drunk at communion, right, in this church, people that are eating all of the food at communion before the other, everybody gets through the line, right? Can you imagine, like, uh, coming up through there and, and there's no bread left because some dude's like, you know, you ever get a big hunk at communion? Isn't that awkward? I did that last week. I was like, well, that's a few bites right there, right? I don't know what to do with that. I'm going to share with people around me. Uh, but, you, you know, can you imagine, like, somebody just took the whole loaf, and then you get up there, and you're like, I got, but these people were just eating, and they were getting drunk. We got, we got people, we got a guy that's in this church that's sleeping with his stepmom, right? We got people that are saying that the resurrection didn't really happen, right? That's the kind of stuff that Paul's going to be dealing with later in this book. And so if I'm Paul, I'm going to be laying right into sort of those things first, right? And be like, okay, you guys got to get this stuff straight. And then at the end, I'll be like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, it'd be unified, please. Stop the divisions. But no, no, Paul's going to start here. 
I'm going to start here, and it tells us something about the importance of the body of Christ and, and us being unified and what it, what it means not only to us here, but to the world and, and to God's glory. And so we're going to walk through this together and, and look at uh, unity and, and, and just with three different things. What is it? Right? Why does it? What is it? Why does it matter? And then how do we achieve it? So let's look at this passage together. And, and Paul starts out, I want you to just hear the, the language that, that he starts with in verse 10 uh, as he kind of shifts from his greeting into this, this first of these issues. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. I, even that language, Paul's going to command lots of things later. And he commands lots of things throughout all of his writings. And, and he has the authority to do so, right? He started out this book by talking about he's an apostle called by God. Like he, he's been given that authority over the church. But, but in this, this, this posture, this, this tone comes across differently. He, he says, I, I, I appeal to you, guys. I, I appeal to you, brothers, just that you would have unity. It's what he's going to get to. That you would that there would that you would all agree that there would be no divisions among you. That you would be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. So first, I want to define what is he talking about? What is he appealing to these people to achieve? What is unity in in this context here that Paul is aiming for with the local church? And, and I would I would say this: it's first of all, it's not uniformity. What he's saying here is not that everybody has to think the same, act the same, dress the same, and, and you know, believe all of this, you know, vote the same, and all of those things. That's not what he's saying. It's not uniformity, but instead it's, it's harmony. Okay? It's harmony on the things that matter most. We, we are in agreement there, that we understand that we have a bond that, that, that goes beyond our, our opinions and our beliefs on secondary issues because why? Because we're family. I want you to hear the language that he used there. That word brothers in, in the Greek is Adelphi, which, you know, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, like you're familiar with that. Like it, it literally means brothers and sisters or siblings of a family. Like that's what he's saying. He says, hey, guys, I, I, I appeal to you. We're, we're brothers and sisters. And I want you to, this church is, is divided. This church is in a mess. I want you to imagine them having this letter read to them, right? I want you to imagine what, what you're feeling in that moment, knowing that what he's going to see is there's factions and people are following this. There's, this church is on the verge of splitting, as we'll see in a minute. And there's different people, and then there's people saying this, and, and there's all sorts of things. And, and I want you to picture them gathered in a room and a, and a leader reading this letter, and, and Paul the, the, the pastor that planted this church, that, that loved this church. He spent a year and a half with these people. That was longer than he spent with most of his churches. He spent a year and a half with these people at Corinth, planting this church, laboring with them, preaching the gospel to them, seeing them come to faith. He loved these people, and he moved on to plant another church. Most We believe he's in Ephesus at this point when he's writing this letter. And so he's there, but he still cares about them, and he has this tone, and, and, and he says, listen, I, I appeal to you guys, brothers and sisters. Like, we're family. So he's sort of calling this family meeting. He goes, hey, guys, I know, th- I know there's issues, and we're going to get to that, but, but listen, don't forget. Don't forget why we're here. Don't forget that... that that we're, that we're family. Just before that, in the verse that we ended with last week, verse 9, this greeting, he tells them, he says, listen, I'm, I'm really, I'm hopeful because God's going to sustain you. Um, and he says, God is faithful, in verse 9, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That is what makes us family. That's what gives us this sense of, of blood relation where, where that matters the most. 
So it's sort of this, this calling us back to the most important thing. And again, it's not that we have to fall in line and everybody has to agree on everything and, and you know, look exactly the same. And, and it's not uniformity. It, it's, it's harmony. In fact, the, the diversity that we all come from in the church, that, that makes the harmony and the unity all mo- the more beautiful, doesn't it? When we, when we realize that it's not about, we're not gathered here this morning because we all believe the same, vote the same, have the same amount of money, and, and live in the same neighborhood, right? You guys have come from all different places around Southern Illinois. You've come from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds. You have all different baggage. You have all different hopes and, and seasons of life in front of you. Some of you, uh, you know, are in, in junior high and still trying to figure out that whole deal, and others of you... Uh, you know, have, have multiple grandkids and you're on that season of life and, and everything in between. And we're, we're, we're brought together not because of our shared, you know, affinity of, of life stage or what, but because of what Jesus Christ has done and called us into. That's what makes us family. That's what that bonds us together. And so that's, again, the diversity actually amplifies the beauty of unity. I, I don't know if you remember or, or, or studied this, but in Jesus' 12 disciples, right, when Jesus was alive and, and, and walking, he has his 12, like his core people who eventually, you know, 11 of them become the, the founders of the church. Like, we, we have this, this displayed for us because we have a guy who was a tax collector for the Roman government, which made him hated by most people, most Jewish people, because that means he's a Jew and the Romans are ruling over the Jews and, and not in a pleasant way, but he sees an opportunity to make money because the Romans want to collect taxes from the Jews. So he says, so he takes their incentive to say, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll be the one that collects taxes to pay for this oppressive government. And, and he doesn't just take what the Romans demand, but he takes some for himself. And so this makes him an enemy to most people. Most people hated the tax collectors. That's why you see people freaking out when Jesus is hanging out with them. Right? It's not a good thing when they say, well, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners because they had our own category. Right? So, so we had Matthew, who's a tax collector, who's one of the early disciples. And then we have this other guy named Simon that's a zealot. And that means that this guy is literally on the other side of that where he spends his time trying to rally people to overthrow the Roman government so the Jews can be back in power. Right? They are on completely opposite ends of the, of the political spectrum. And yet... And yet, we see them living in unity. Why? Because they just got over it? No, 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 because of what Jesus had done. Because of who Jesus was. They were bonded by that. And so, I don't think all of their disagreements went away overnight. And yet, what mattered the most bonded them together primarily. And so, so again, this is, this is unity. This is harmony, not uniformity. And in fact, the diversity of our, of our life stage and beliefs adds to the beauty of the unity that, call, that Paul is calling them to here. So he says, be of the same mind and the same judgment. So he's actually using a, a pretty familiar political phrase for these people, right, where these people were, would talk about different facts, like because, you know, Corinth had all these different, you know, factions of, of beliefs and people were identified with this teacher and this ideology or whatever. And so Paul sort of leverages a language that they would use in their own world and saying, no, 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 hey, actually do that here. In a world that's thirsty for that, in a world that is lacking that, actually live that out here in the body of Christ. And so he uses that. And so when he's saying being in the same mind and in the same judgment, he's talking about knowing what matters the most and being unified on that front for the sake of God's glory and for the, per- the, the 
preserving of the church. So, unity. That's what it is. Why does it matter? Why, why does it matter? Because most of us probably don't just, you know, have an angst for unity, and that's not the, that's the primary thing that you probably think about with, with the church. But I want you to hear, again, Paul started with this, and, and again, the language here, uh, it matters immensely for, for two reasons. One is going to be for our joy, but secondly, for God's glory. But I want to flesh that out a little bit more because I want you to hear even the language that, that Paul is using here, the appeal, and, and he's, he's, you know, uh, calling on their, the familial aspect of the church, brothers, and, and he points to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like th- He says, hey, guys, for, for, the, for, for the sake of Jesus, let's, let's do this thing. But he, but he says this, that you would all agree that there would be no divisions among you. That's actually not the, probably the best translation to, to really get the impact of what was going on here. The Greek there is the word schismata. And, and so it's where we get the word, you know, schism. And it, it literally is, is, is more about factions, like a, and a tearing apart. Like this is not just uh, divisions of doctrine here. Like this, is, this denotes a, a tear, right? It was used to describe a fishing net that has a tear that needs to be mended or a, a rending apart of two groups. Like um, Paul often refers to the body of Christ or to the church as the body of Christ. And so in a sense, he's talking about, hey, don't be, don't be tearing apart the body of Christ. Don't be tearing Christ limb for limb. Like this is, you are the body of Christ. And, and so these tears, these, these factions, they're, they're more like more than just disagreements. Like these are splits. It literally should translate better to splits among you. And so I want you to think like that this is what Paul has planted this church and labored together with him, and then he, he's off planting another church, and he hears, as we're going to see from, from, from Chloe's people. For, so he's in Ephesus, and we assume that Chloe's probably a, a businesswoman that has trading um, and, and business in both cities, and so she has people in both cities, and so she's reported, her people have reported to Paul that, hey, there, there's these divisions that have, that have, these splits that have come up in the church at Corinth. And so this Paul is writing in response to that. But here's the deal. These are not just... So we're familiar with different, like, denominations and disagreements over doctrine, right? I, people, I don't know how to, I, like, this always seems like a crazy stat to me, but they, like, statistics say that there's, there's over 30,000 Protestant re, uh, denominations in the world. Again, I don't know how to begin naming those. Like, I get through, like, 10, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know who else there is. But, but whatever, there's still plenty, right? You can still kind of drive down the road here and see different churches. And, and, and that's not really what's going on here. Again, do I believe that it was the will of God for us to have that many divisions, that many denominations? No. I think ultimately he, like, he would rather there be full unity in his church. But again, we're, we're, there's, a, there's a fallenness to this world. And until we get to heaven, I don't think we're going to have that sort of thing. Uh, and I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to major in that issue. This is not about denominations because this issue is not a doctrinal disagreement. This is actually a, a power struggle that's going on here. This is actually, uh, this is about um, really falling in line with different leaders and, and finding their identity in that, as we'll talk about in a moment. But these are not mere, uh, you know, this person, you know, believes in this part of this theological discussion. And, and so he's kind of circling, you know, people that agree with him on that, you know, as far as predestination goes. And these people believe this. And so it, it's not even that. This is, this is splits and factions that are circling around particular leaders and particular the churches on the verge of splitting. And many of you have been 
around, maybe you've been a part of a church split and, and seen that happen or heard about it and you know the heartbreak that comes from that. And so Paul is writing with a sense of urgency and, and a, an appeal uh, uh, to these people to, to wake up, to remember what matters the most and to have the same mind about them, that what, what's most important. And so um, he, he doesn't defend... And so we kind of see this because Paul never defends those who claim to be following Paul. So as he, as he goes on, he, he says, it's, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarreling among you, my brothers. Verse 12, what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul. And others say, I follow Apollos, and I, or I follow Cephas, which is Peter's um, Greek name. And, and, and others say, I follow Christ. And so th- this is what Paul is dealing with here. And, and if this was a doctrinal issue, then I, I think at some point we would see Paul defending the position of one of those groups, right? That, that, probably his own, right? The people who say, I follow Paul. Paul's saying, hey, this is why this doctrine is right. This is why this matters. But he doesn't do that. He's not going to be defending any particular group. He just sort of condemns all of these groups wholly and completely, like that they shouldn't exist at all. Like it's not that one's right and fall in line. Like, you, you know, you Peter followers and you uh, Apollo's followers need to fall in line with, with Paul, or all of you need to get over it and fall in line with Christ. He says, no, 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 these, these factions shouldn't exist at all. He condemns them all uh, wholesale, period. And so we're going to see why as we look into a little bit more why does unity matter. Well, here, here's part of it is because it, mat- like, it matters for our joy, like to, for our, this is part of our salvation. We, we talk a lot about how God is not just forgiving of sins and, and, and letting us, you know, tolerating us so that we don't have to go to hell when we, we die, but, but he's actually restoring and redeeming what was lost. And so if we go all the way back to the beginning and when things were good in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that, that God exists within a trinity. And again, that's a mind-blowing, you know, doctrine that I, that I don't have time to fully unpacked, but what that means is that God is, God is in community himself. The, the, the language there, even in creation, is let us make man in our own image. So there's this, there's this relational aspect to just the very being of who God is that, that we were made into. And so when we talk about the sin that comes in Genesis 3, that separ- and we use this language a lot, right, that sin separates us from God, that, that's more than just this positional separation as far as holiness and unholiness and, and you know, heaven and hell and, and those sorts of things. Those things are true. It's not less than that, but it's more than that because it, it's our source of life. Like we were made to be in this relationship with God. We were made to not only be relationship with God, but, but in shalom or in, in like peace with one another. Like that's how things were supposed to be in the garden. Not only are we in relationship with, with God who exists in a, in a Trinitarian you know, presence as one God, three persons, not only is that true, and it is, and we can't fully even explore the, the, the foundations of, of that or the, the fullness of the implications of that, but, but more than that, the way that he made us is that we're supposed to be in harmony with one another. Like shalom, like they were naked and unashamed, like there was not this division, there wasn't this strife, there wasn't this hiding and so that's true in the beginning, and then we see that there's this language of a people. There's this language of dwelling together that is threaded throughout all that God is doing in the Old Testament. It's particularly highlighted in Psalm 133, where, where God just says this, how good and pleasant it is 
when brothers dwell in unity. Not just good as in it's the right thing to do, but actually pleasant. So you may not know it. Again, this may not be on the forefront of like things you need. But what it's saying here is like our makeup, the way that God has designed us is, is part of what we need to enjoy the fullness of life is unity. It's to have a, a people that we identify with so deeply that secondary things stay to be secondary things because we have this rich inheritance, this rich salvation that comes through Christ. And that is part of salvation, him restoring that sense of unity in us. So, so it's, it's important for our joy that we have this, this unity, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Like, and, and, and honestly, just like, just being honest with ourselves, like we all long for this, right? We long to be in a world where there's not this sort of strife, where we don't have to, um, you know, battle against one another and, and sort of fight that out. We all long for that. And, and it's, it's more clear to some than others, right? Depending on our background, depending on what we kind of identify ourselves with, but for our joy. And then secondly, it's for God's glory. So again, we, we see that from the very beginning, that's how God made his creation to be. But then we see very deeply, very intently in John chapter 17, when Jesus is, is in the garden praying before he goes to the cross. And it's this incredible, it's called the high priestly prayer. And you should read the whole chapter um, this afternoon. But, but Jesus is, is praying and laboring in prayer before he goes to the cross. And he's talking to his father. And he says this. He says, he's praying for his people, but he says, you know, that believe in him now. But he says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. So he's, he's praying for you and me in this moment, in John 17, before he goes to the cross, he's thinking about the church through the ages. And, and in 2020, like he's thinking about us, those who will believe. Well, that's you and me. And he's praying this for us, that they all may be one. just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe. This is why. So the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus has said elsewhere, and we know it, that, that he tells his disciples that the world will know us by our what? By our love, right? That we love one another. Like, this is part of what he's, what he's fleshing out here. He's saying, hey, Father, we, you and I have always had this unity. You, you've been in me, I've been in you, and we've lived in this, this, this shalom, this, this harmony forever. And now I'm about to go to the cross to tear down the walls of hostility so that they can experience that with you and me as well and with, and with one another. And it's going to be this incredible witness to the rest of the world. It's not just that it's the good and right thing to do, but it's a witness to the rest of the world when, when the people of God are unified around the person and work of Jesus Christ. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Earlier in John chapter eleven fifty two or verse 52, it says that Jesus has come not just for the nation of, of Israel only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. 
This idea of unity is, is on Jesus' heart in this moment. It's a part of our salvation. It's not just forgiveness, as we're going to talk about in a minute. It's a part of what he's offering and inviting us into in a, restore, in a, in a restored world. The effects of sin going away, like that, that's, that's happening in and through the church. And a part of it is that we would dwell in unity. He write, Paul writes further in Ephesians 2. He's talking to them about the reconciliation that Christ brings about. He says this in Ephesians 2, 13 through 18. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, or made us both one, right? So he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. It made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So again, this is a, this is a racial uh, tension moment for these people where there's Jews and there's Gentiles and they've existed in a world where, where they thought very poorly of one another. The Jews thought the Gentiles were filthy, wicked, pagan people because they were, right? And, and then the, the Gentiles thought the Jews were stuck-up religious people because they were, Right? And so they have this divide where they did not like to be around each other. The Jews thought that the Gentiles were filthy, and if they got around them, they'd you know, catch their sin. And, and the, you know, the Gentiles just frankly didn't want to be around them because they're religious fuddy-duddies, right? They're, they're no, like, nobody wants to be around that person. And so there's this hostility that's existed far beyond my simple explanation that I sort of jokingly gave. There's a very real tension that has existed between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul is saying, no, no, that, that wall came down when Christ died on the cross. And, and there's no longer Jew and Gentile. There's no longer this and that. There's one people of God. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So we see that the, the unity of the church matters for our joy, for our good, for what God is cultivating in us as a gift of salvation, but also for his glory. That it is, it is a witness to the rest of the world whenever the people of God come together and actually experience unity, even though we come from a diversity of backgrounds and issues, that when we experience unity here, when we love one another, even across denominational lines, right? So I can disagree with what another denomination believes about their whatever, right? And I can even not like that doctrine because it's a really, I think it's a harmful doctrine to the church, right? I could disagree strongly with what they believe, but you know what? I still love them. Why? Because they're, they're Christ, right? They belong to Christ. Like if, if they've trusted in him as their savior, they're part of our family, right? They're, they're blood. Like, so, so they're not my enemy. I'm not out to take them down. I'm not out even to prove them wrong. I'm called to love them. And the world could use the Christians to take this seriously, to, to, to be a people who are not further, you know, you know, cultivating this idea of polarization and, you know, divisiveness in our world, but instead, lean in. We partner together on things that we can partner together on, right? We, we have close-handed issues, and, and yeah, I mean, these are ortho, this is orthodox Christianity, and, and, if, and if, if we're in on that, then these secondary issues, man, we can partner together 
We have beliefs as a church. That's why we exist. Like, I'm not saying denominations are, are bad. Like, we, we believe what we believe on purpose, right? It's not, we're not the church that says those things don't matter. In fact, we try to value doctrine at a really high level. But we've got to stop villainizing the church across the street, right? Stop villainizing other Christians who don't believe like us because it is a witness to the rest of the world. And then even more specifically, we've got to stop villainizing one another, Right? We gotta stop splitting with one another. We get, like we should be seeing more churches come to fruition because we're planting more churches to reach more people. Not because, well, this group of people didn't like how the church was doing it anymore, so they went to go do church the way they like it. Right? No, no, we should be sending out churches to reach more and more people. And that should be what the, the, the community is hearing about is whoa, there's another church coming up here. Like, whoa, there's another church that's serving our community. There's another church that's helping the vulnerable. There's another church that's walking with people who are in sin. There's another church that is investing in in the people around here. There's another church that is living in harmony with one another when the rest of the world is all sorts of divided. Like, that's what the world should be seeing, and that's what Christ is, is praying for in John 17, that we would have unity with God and then unity with one another. So that's what it is. That's why it's important. How do we get there? How do we achieve it? Well, I think <clears throat> two things. First, we've got we to let Christ validate us personally, and then we've got to let Christ validate others. All right, so here's what I mean by that. So we're going to look, look a little bit, bit more into what was going on here in, in Corinth. So we had people, Paul says, we've got some that are following Paul, some that are following Apollo, some that are following Cephas, and others just really just said, well, we're just the Jesus people, right? And, and he says this, is Christ divided? Was, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And what he's going to get at here is the, is the, in, the issue with the Corinthian people is, is that they, they're sort of living out this, this partial aspect of the gospel. So they've been changed, right? The fact that they're gathering in a church says that, that they've been changed. The gospel has transformed their life to a large degree, at least to the point where they, they've embraced Jesus as the Lord and Savior. He talked about that in chapter 1. And they are gathering together, at least in some level. You know, they're, they're, they're screwing it up, but at least they're coming to church and having communion, right? Like they, they have been transformed from a people who did not love Jesus in the world of Corinth to a people who do love Jesus and are living for him. But yet, they, they don't, they've not fully leaned into all that God has for them in the gospel. So they've, let, they've embraced the forgiveness part of the gospel, right? The salvation part, like, okay, I know I can't handle, you know, where I go when I die. I need somebody to take care of that for me, so I'm gonna trust in Jesus for that, and I'll even start going to church. But, but as far as what, what gives me my identity, as far as what gives me value in the world, they haven't let that be changed yet. Why? How do we know that? Because they're still doing exactly what the rest of the world and the culture that's around them is doing. So, Corinth was this bustling city of trade, this bustling, growing city. It had been sort of started over again, and it's, it's taken off in growth. And one of the things that they have is they have this culture of, like, people coming in and sharing ideas, sort of the TED Talk world, right, where this, this, this guy's coming in and sharing this idea, and, and that's going viral, and other people are coming to hear him. He's telling them more. So we have this, this, this you know, give and take of, of these people are gaining prominence, these people are gaining power. And that's how people sort of found their identity, was identifying with this ideology, this leader, this teacher. And so the people of Corinth in the church, they've let Jesus forgive them, right? They know how to answer the right questions, and they're attending church. But as far as where do they get their value, where do they get their identity, they've taken the things of the culture, and they've brought it right back into the church. And now they're doing this thing of following this guy, following that guy, or following that guy. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. You, you've forgotten that the, the very nature of the gospel 
is that you're not going to find your validation in any external thing. You're not going to find your worth in anything that you can accomplish, anything that you can identify with. That's why Christ had to die, because you couldn't do that. And so he just uses himself as an example. He goes, hey, was, was Paul crucified for you? He goes, was, was, the, my life, was my life taken for you? No, no, no. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He says, no. So the nature of what's going on here is sort of the same thing that happened in Exodus. So we can make fun a lot of, of the golden calf incident in Exodus. And so if you don't know this story, God does this incredible work through the plagues. The people are, are in Egypt. He rescues them in Egypt or out of Egypt through these plagues, brings them across the Red Sea in the crazy story we know where he parted the waters. They walk through on dry land. He crushes the Egyptians. He does this incredible work for them. He starts feeding them from just, you know, this stuff just falls from heaven. It's their food, right? Manna gives them water from a rock. He's done all these incredible things to rescue them. And then they're at Mount Sinai where God is, is, is finalizing this covenant with them. And Moses is on the mountain you know, communing with God, setting all of this up. And while he's up there for just a few days, after they've been told, hey, don't worship any other gods. Like, hey, they, they basically said, God tells them, hey, we got this good thing going. I rescued you, right? Now I'm going to make you into a people. And here's part of what you got to do. Don't worship any other gods. Don't make any other graven images. And literally while Moses is up there, just the, in the same setting, just a few days later, they're like, hey, we really, we'd like to have a God. We'd like to have a, uh, how about a calf? Let's make a golden calf. Right? And so they, they put all their jewelry together, they throw it in, they make this golden calf, and we can sort of sit back and, and poke fun and laugh at them and go, like, come on, you boneheads. Like, it, it's just, you blew it so quickly and you, you, you missed it. But here's what they did. They were, they were quite content that, that God had brought them out of Egypt. They were grateful for that, right? For the salvation, the forgiveness, like that sort of thing. But they had not yet been let, uh, let God identify them as the people of God. They had not yet found their value and their identity in belonging to him. And the rest of the world, what they had known in Egypt and in the known world at that time is all the, pe- the rest of the world had their, their gods, right? They had their idols. They had their, their physical symbols of this is us and this is who we identify with. So they said, man, we want, we want to be known for something. We want to have our thing. And so they made a golden calf. And God almost, like, consumes them all. Moses intercedes, he forgives, and, and, but, it, but it's this incredible story. And again, we could sort of sit back at the Corinthians and go, why are we, you know, picking that guy and that guy? Like, you know, we could sit back and kind of look at the Israelites, like, really, a golden calf? But here's, here's what they're doing. They're doing the same thing that we're tempted to do. Because, see, most of us, we've, we've let Jesus forgive us of our sins. We've let Jesus give us hope of heaven when we die. And we even come to church regularly. But when it comes to what gives us value in the world, we still approach it just like the world so many times, don't we? We still say, well, I really want to have that thing, or I want to have that job, or I want to have that status, or that level of success. So like, I, I know Christ has done this for me, but what, what I really want is for people to think of me this way and to have this style, this identity, this house, this car, right? And, and so we sort of long this level of respect, like fill in the blank for what your own idol is, like, right? It's not golden calves, and it's not maybe, you know, this preacher, that preacher, but, but it's we take our own value and try to find it in external things just like they do. And when we do that, that's when we get disunity, Right? Because now my value is not in what Christ has done for me, but my value is, is in how can I feel in relation to you? How can I feel when I compare myself to you? When I look out and see 
the, the, the kinds of clothes that you're wearing, do I feel good or bad about the kind of clothes that I'm wearing? When I look out and, and you know, when I'm invited to your home and I see the kind of home that you live in, do I feel good or bad about the, the kind of home that, that I live in? When, when I see the kind of cars in the parking lot out there, do I feel good or bad about the kind of car that, that I drove here? You see, we start to get our value out of comparing ourselves to one another whenever we're trying to get our value out of something other than Christ. And that is when the soil is ripe for disunity. Right, because we're trying to find our value in something else. That's what these people were doing. It's patronage. They were trying to attach themselves to this leader or that leader so that they could find their value. And we do the same sort of thing. So how do we achieve unity? We have to let Christ validate us. We have to let Christ be the one that gives us value. Again, Paul says, is Christ divided? Like, is it this part of Christ, that part of Christ? No, no, no. And he says, he uses himself again. Was Paul crucified for you? Like, you're going to find your value in these men and these teachers and this ideology? He says, you forget that what, what the need that Christ met here was not your need to feel good around other people. The need that Christ met was your lack of holiness and your sinful hopelessness in the face of a holy God. That's the need that Christ came to met. To meet, and, and he gave his life for that. And so don't attach yourself to some other thing, some other God, some other smaller being to find your value. Instead, know that that is what defines you. That is what gives you value, is that Christ himself died on the cross in your place. And when we remember that, we have, like, we're transformed from the inside out. And we're not here to try to get our life together so we can feel better about our status amongst the world. We're here because Jesus has become our everything. Because we realize he's the only thing that truly matters. He's the only thing that can be secure in this world of, like, when life's just falling apart, right? I hear from people all the time, like, I, this is going on, this is going on. I can barely hold it together, right? Some of you like almost lost it when people asked you how you were this morning. That's why we say each week is it's okay to not be okay. Why? Because Christ is our hope. It's not in our ability to perform. Christ is our hope. And when he validates us, we have a real shot at unity. But secondly, we have to let him validate others as well. So when we look out across the crowd, when we look out across the, the church, whether that be our local church, and there's implications for that, and then the church at large, we have to let Christ validate those people as well. Right? So we don't look at them as, as you know, less than us or different than us, but rather those are our brothers and sisters. Right? Those are it's our family. He says, were you baptized into Paul? When we're baptized, we're baptized into the family of God. We're baptized into Christ. We're going to do a couple baptisms here in a bit. And, and that's, the, that's what, it, they're being baptized into the body of Christ, not into this church, that church, this, this follower, this person, this preacher. No, 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 into the body of Christ. And when others are given value by the same thing, right? Because now I don't need to compare myself to you to feel better about myself. Right? Because of what Christ has done, he's brought my identity. So now when I look at you, I don't need to you know, place myself above or below you to give myself 
about you. Instead, I can actually humanize you and look at you as one who's a child of God, one who is in the same place as me. I don't, I don't need to use people. I don't need to wonder if I'm being used by people because what matters most is Christ. So when we're bonded by this, when this sort of thing happens, it's a beautiful witness to a broken and divided world. When people see that people from all different walks of life, different races, people, when people see people coming to the journey and hear about people coming to the church, and, and there's people here that are, that are struggling with addiction to drugs, right? And then there's people here who have never touched a drug. When people see that people from this race that have always been skeptical about that, that they're here in, in a room full of people from this race. Like when we see there are people here, they have their kids in foster care because of the mistakes that they have made. And at the same time, across the aisle, there's people who have opened up their home to be a place for those kids while they're in foster care so that those families can have reconciliation. Whenever we see that there's people here that are broke and there's people here that are rich, when there's people here that drove in luxury, and there's people here who barely made it in their hoopty, right? People that have tattoos and people who could never dream of such a thing. None of that matters because we're bonded by Christ. We have unity because we are blood. We are, there, there's the adage of family, right? Of, of the, the, the bond of a blood relative. Right? My, my, little, my kids, I didn't have siblings, but my kids can, can go at each other and be angry at each other. But the moment that they hear somebody else talk ill of their sibling, boy, they're all united on that deal, right? They're all standing up for one another. Why? Because family trumps all, right? We have this bond that, that binds us together, and that's how it should be for Christ. Like the foundational thing that binds us together is the body and blood of Christ. I get moved by this at communion each week when I see, our, when I see just the, the diversity of people going through and the different stages of life, the different things that, are, that I know are going on in your lives, and, and, I, and I just see the, the family. Like, it's just, it makes me well up with just joy and pride for our church, the family of God that, that he's put together here. It's this beautiful thing where we're united by the blood and body of Jesus Christ. So we let Christ validate us personally. We let Christ validate others. That means that when we have a disagreement with somebody, they don't become our enemy. Right? You can have a disagreement here in the church with one another, but they don't become your enemy, right? You can actually have conversation about different things, and, and you don't have to end it by bashing them on social media and never talking to them again and considering them evil. When someone isn't leading the way you like, whenever somebody isn't, you know, participating the way you like, when somebody isn't filling the blank, like we can approach them as we would family. We can engage in conflict without becoming divided. And Paul ends by saying, listen, I'm, I'm just, he says, I'm glad that I didn't baptize more of you. Why? Because baptism's not a big deal? No, because Paul's saying, because with that, Paul had this reputation and, and if he'd done that, then more people would feel sort of attached to him and, and uh, you know, latched onto him. And he's saying, I'm just glad that I didn't baptize that many of you and, and so that there's not more of that issue. He says, because ultimately, God didn't call me to baptize people, which is interesting because the Great Commission literally says, go into all the world and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? But what he's saying here is it's not primary, right? The primary thing is that the gospel gets preached and you know that that's where you find salvation. And he says, 
anybody can baptize you. That's not a big deal. Like, like, it is, like who does it isn't the big deal. That you get it done is, is a huge deal. But Paul says this. He, he sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul says, I wasn't sent to this popularity thing and to plant this this church where people come to hear this great preacher. Instead, I've come to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. So if you're here, know that that's our hope. If you're here and you don't know about church, you don't know why we do this, our hope is is to make clear each week the good news of Jesus Christ. That we are broken and hopeless people who have sinned and separated ourselves from the very source of life, and that is our God. But he didn't sit idly by. Instead, he came. That's what we just celebrated in Christmas. He stepped in. He lived lived the life that we couldn't live, and he died the death that only you and I deserve to die so that we could experience salvation and forgiveness. So I want to invite you to consider what is the Lord inviting you into Where are you at with that? Have you made that profession? Have you trusted him as your savior? You've been brought into the family of God. If not, man, we'd love to see you repent of your sins and trust Jesus today. I'm gonna pray now and then we're gonna celebrate with baptism. God, I'm grateful for who you are and that you've purchased the victory for us, that we were united because of the body and blood of Christ. And I ask that now, Lord, as we move into a time of response, that you would continue to show your power by reigning in our hearts, by giving us faith to respond. And, Lord, we celebrate what you've done in in the lives of these two young uh, believers. And we just pray, Lord, that all of us would be edified as we worship and, and celebrate together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.